Well, welcome everyone. My name is Debbie Manning. I'm one of the pastors here at the table. And we are in the beginning of our Lent season. We kicked it off Wednesday night with a service at 7 o'clock right here. It was beautiful. It was holy. And it was sacred right up to a certain point. Um, We had beautiful music and message. And then at the end of the service, Matt and I stood right up here. And as is the tradition of the ancient church, we imposed ashes on people's forehead in the sign of the cross. And I love those moments when you get to look into into the eyes of people who come forward and ashes to ashes, dust to dust, from death to eternal life. It's a really cool moment. Up until the point everyone was done and Matt and I turned toward each other. And as I looked up at Matt and did the ashes to ashes, dust to dust, I could see him getting really nervous. And he went, he whispers, did you look into everybody's eyes like that? And I said, yes, I did. And then Matt went ahead and did the ashes on my forehead. And he was kind of had that nervous laugh that he gets. And as I walked to my family on the side, they went, you've got ashes all the way down to the tip of your nose. So it was super holy until that moment. That doesn't surprise anyone. But we are in the beginning of our our Lent series. And as you could tell from Mark's reading, we are in Psalm 23. And Lent, it is this season, right, where we sort of enter our own spiritual wilderness. And it's a time to pause and do some self-examination and self-reflection. And what I love about Lent is that it, it really challenges us. It challenges us to uh, look away from all those distractions, all those things that kind of keep us caught up in the things of the world, and it redirects us. It redirects us to the one audience who really wants to connect with us, and that's God. So over the next six weeks, we will be in Psalm 23, and we'll be taking it one verse at a time. And our hope is is that as we lean in just a little more deeply, that we might experience God in a different way, that we might find something new in all of that, that we could apply to the lives we're trying to live, these lives of hope and our lives of unconditional love. So we are in the Psalms, those poetic prayers and songs and lamentations, those things that make up the book of Psalms that were recorded to teach worshipers how to praise and lament and grieve. And over the centuries, I think many people have returned time and time again to the Psalms when they're in these places of pain and suffering and grief and loss and joy and places of uncertainty. Because oftentimes we find when we're praying through those Psalms, it, it almost ends up being like this place of refuge. And I would say along with the Lord Prayer, Psalm 23, is probably one that's really familiar to a lot of us who grew up in the church. I know for me, it was one of the first things that I learned, that I memorized as a a younger girl. But I think there's a good reason that Psalm 23 is so well known. This eloquent and simple text, it captures something really central to our faith. And what it captures is that in times of uncertainty, in times of pain. It captures the reminder that God is always with us, that God is the good shepherd. 
You know, I just mentioned that I, it was the first thing I memorized, and there's this sort of muscle memory when you're silently reciting something over years. But for me, that muscle memory, the Lord's Prayer, was always something that reminded me of God's truth, of God's presence in my life. And that even though sometimes we're repeating something over and over again the familiar, in the familiarity, we, it can lose its, memory, its meaning. In Psalm 23, I think it's actually something that comes to life. And it's such a beautiful thing. And I have to say that Psalm 23, over years of doing ministry, has been one of my go-tos. So often, if I'm sitting with someone before they're about to have surgery... Or if someone just found out about a new diagnosis of cancer. Or if I'm sitting with a family as they're saying their goodbyes to a loved one. If I'm with someone navigating a broken relationship, we oftentimes will turn to Psalm 23. And it's my experience of Jesus. It's that experience that has convinced me that Psalm 23 is far more than just a pretty poem or some sentimental words that we like to talk about, but it's actually a really beautiful description of the kind of life that we can all have if we make God the good shepherd of our life. Some of you have heard this story, and uh, I think it's bare worth repeating if you haven't, but about seven years ago, I actually um, went in for an eye exam. I've always had great 20-20 vision. But as I've gotten older, I've needed progressive lenses so I could see close up. And I went in because I thought I should get some progressive lenses instead of looking at everyone through my readers. And as I went in, the eye doctor said, I can't even get you a prescription for your right eye. Your vision is so bad. It's almost not there. You barely have anything. So as they sent me to the retina specialist, um, what I found out was I had something called branch vein retina occlusion. And somewhere along the line, in the midst of a lot of studying and writing papers and late nights, I had had an event in my right eye. The vein and artery coming in and out of my eye, the blood had thickened. And it pressed against each other and it formed a mass in the middle of my eye. And it obstructed all my vision. Well, of course, my husband, who I've told you before, always thinks I'm close to unconscious. I'm so laid back. He's like, how could you not know that you didn't have any vision in your right eye? Well, I didn't. I did not. I had no clue. But all that to say, over the last six plus years, started going in once a month over the first few years, and I've stretched it out little by little, and now I go once every nine weeks. I actually just went Friday, and I have an eye injection. And I go in, and it's about two and a half to three hours. I'm kind of out of commission because I've had a lot of bad experiences. I have a raised cornea, and the first couple years, I'd come away with a scratched or torn cornea. Um, I've had lots of issues along the way, so I'm a specialty case. So they do all sorts of stuff to make it just right for me. I've had really bad pressure problems and all this. But at the end of the day, it's kind of become a traumatic thing for me. But here's what I wanted to share, is that every single time in every injection over many years, my go-to my reminder that it's going to be okay, even in the midst of the anxiety of that injection, is Psalm 23. And so, picture this. 
finally after the tests and the scans, and he says again, oh yeah, we're gonna do another injection, and then they lay me back in a chair, and they stick a needle in my eye and numb it, and then he comes back in and he says, right eye, right, and I go, correct? And then they clamp open my eye with a little metal clamp, and I lay there like this. Look down to the left, and he takes a needle, and he sticks it into the back of my eye. So during this whole process, I, in my head, am reciting Psalm 23. And every single time that the injection, the needle, I see it coming down, I make sure I'm at the top where I say, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And that has been a saving grace for me. It has been this beautiful reminder that at the end of the day, God's got this. God's got this, that I will be okay. And I always am. And it's a pretty amazing thing. But that's what I love about Psalm 23. And here it is, Psalm 23. Oh, I do want to say this because it's important to the story. What I realized in that moment when my eyes clamped open and I'm praying and reciting Psalm 23, what I realized is that is the most vulnerable moment, not only physically, but emotionally and spiritually for me. And it's in that moment, reciting those words, that I feel this deep connection to God. So Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. We're pretty familiar with that. It seems pretty simple. simple but those two things are intricately tied together. And the question that it asks us of us tonight is what does it mean to live a life with God as our shepherd? What does a life without lack look like? A road marked with God's great sufficiency for all of our needs. What does that look like? What does it look like to be a person who has this presence of peace and patience and a lack of self-absorption, a person who seems unworried, a person who's carefree and still cares for other people. I think it's the life that some of us do know. It's a life that some of us are coming to know. And I think it's a life that we are created for and that we're called to. We only find that life in the good shepherd. And Psalm 23 tells us that the good shepherd is a caring shepherd. And there's a richness in the imagery of this that's really important for us as we continue to explore this one verse. Because a contemporary view of a shepherd would not do it justice. Because in ancient times, the shepherd had a lot of responsibilities. The primary responsibilities were guarding his flock. This was no easy task. There were wild animals and there were thieves. The sheep, the sheep themselves wandered away. And what it meant was, at the risk of his own life, that shepherd, that shepherd had to actively work to keep the sheep safe from harm. And if any were missing, he'd head out into the night. He'd tend to their wounds. He'd bind up their injuries. He'd strengthen the weak. And a shepherd would meet the flock's basic needs of food and water. And that, too, was no easy task. It was a lot of work bringing a whole mass of sheep to food and water. It took someone with skill and endurance, someone with fortitude. 
But our God is depicted in scripture of someone who goes far beyond even that as a shepherd. But a shepherd who actually blesses his flock. And we also have Jesus to look to as a model for the good shepherd. In the Gospel of John, John is talking to some Pharisees and he's trying to get through to them this message. And we're in John 10, and here we go. I, and this is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus, foreshadowed by the psalmist, I think he's the best glimpse that we get of the nature of God that we can center our lives in. And it's about the way we live that counts, that we experience life without lack. There's an English Baptist preacher. He was around in the mid-1800s, Charles Spurgeon. And this is what he had to say. We have all things and abound, not because I have a good store of money in the bank, not because I have skill and wit with which to win my bread, but because the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. We're in the care of someone else. We're not in charge. We've taken all we've gotten. We've surrendered it to the one who has everything. And we are called to live this life, this living with God life. So I think all this so far, right? kind of knew this. I think it makes perfect sense. It's been some of my experience, a lot of my experience. But I think the question for us tonight, when it comes to the good shepherd, do we actually believe it to be true? Do we believe it to be true that if we place God at the center of our life, that God will actually take care of anything we need? Dallas Willard, a pastor, theologian, he passed away a few years ago. He wrote a book. And his book is called Life Without Lack, and it's actually a book on Psalm 23. And this is what Dallas Willard has to say. One of our greatest needs today is for people to really see and really believe the things they already profess to see and believe. Knowing about things, knowing what they are, being able to identify them and say them does not mean we actually believe them. When we truly believe what we profess, we are set to act as if it was true. Acting as if things are true means, in turn, that we live as if they were so. Living as though things were true. I think many of us would say, yeah, I, I believe what Psalm 23 says. I believe it to be true. We might even claim that, yep, I, 
I think I know that the Lord is my shepherd and that I lack nothing. But do we really believe it to be true? Do we act like it in the way we live our lives day to day? Willard's book describes that life, a life that deeply wired on us, I think, is a desire that we have. A life without lack reflects everything in that first verse. But here's the thing. We can't have lack without Lord. And the, the experience of the life without lack, it's completely dependent on the presence of God in our lives. Because I think we'd all agree that God is the source of life. So I think there's two questions we have, two things we can think about. And I think the two questions worded differently get us to the same thing. And here's the first one. What are all the ways we try to cope with life apart from the sufficiency of the shepherd? I don't know about you guys. I do this for a living. I'm in pastoral care experiences all the time where I get to experience God the shepherd and how God provides. And you know, those things kind of fall aside and you realize in those moments of crisis, yep, I got everything I need. And even having those experiences, I have to remind myself in the day-to-day -day of life that God is my shepherd, that God is in charge, not me. Because I continually try to carry it and take it on. So what are all the ways we try to cope with life apart from the sufficiency of the shepherd? And I think the second question is this. What is your mind fixed on? We know that, right? Set your mind on and set your mind and heart on seeking the Lord your God. And the beauty about that is we have the freedom to fix our mind on whatever we choose to fix it on. We have the freedom to think what we want to think about. And I love that our thoughts are where we make our first movement toward God. When we do that, when we set our thoughts, our minds on God, we actually get to experience God. And Dallas Willard would tell you that those are the three, the three things that you would need to do is number one, Set your mind on God. Know God. And that takes intentional practice. Because in the knowing of God, you will then experience God. And through the experience of God, the number two thing is you will believe. That's the basis of your belief is your experience of God. It's not what someone tells you. It's your experience of God. You know, oftentimes the pastor, and I know Matt gets this too, and maybe a lot of you get this, but... People who are uh, wrestling with faith, I think we all have at different times, will come up and they'll want to know from me, well, how do you know that God is real? How do you trust that God is real? And I will tell you that I do put a stake in the sand and I will say I know that there is a real God at work in our lives because I have experienced it, experienced him in these moments that are beyond anything that any of us could imagine. And it's through those experiences that my own belief grows deeper. 
They're transformational moments. And they solidify God as my shepherd. They make me realize that it's God that's got this and not me. So it's the knowing, it's the believing, and it's the living. What does our life look like? The way we live, our actions and our decisions, they will come out of that belief. They'll come out of that belief and it changes the trajectory of our lives. So the intentionality around knowing, stepping into the experiences, or it deepens our belief, and then seeing the change in the way that we actually live our lives. And ultimately, it's all about connectedness. Because a with life is a connected life. And it's in this connected life that we have this sense that no matter what the circumstances are, that God is with us. That it's God that's the good shepherd. I love that idea of connectedness. Has anyone here seen that Netflix series, and I think it's relatively new, called Baby Love? Raise your hand. Am I the only one? There's a series, and it's called Baby Love, and it's, they follow 14 babies from all over the world, and they're, they're following their development. And one of the coolest things about it in the first show is they were measuring the connectedness between the baby and the caregiver. And they could measure that through something called oxytocin. And it was super cool. And as a side note, um, they, know, they were tracking this between 80 moms and their babies. And then um, they said, let's see what the dads do. And any of the people that had spent a lot of time caretaking, being involved in the life of this child were connected. So this reminded that connectedness takes time and intention. doesn't happen by accident. And then the, our super cool thing was they took 80 gay couples who had surrogate, had a surrogate, a baby with a surrogate, and had them since infancy on. They, they were able to measure that in their brain and see that that had increased in them as well as they were developing this connectedness. But there was a second study that I wanted to tell you guys about that I thought was so amazing. And the study was this. They brought into Harvard, this first um, study was done in Tel Aviv. They brought into Harvard... Um, dozens and dozens of moms with their babies. And they were measuring something that could measure the stress in the babies. They were taking samples of their saliva. And they would have the moms sit in a room with the baby in a little car seat, and they'd play with them and do things, and they'd be engaged. And then they would whisper in her ear, okay, sit back and have a straight face and don't interact at all. Super hard to watch. And those little babies were so confused. And some of them would start to cry and some of them would start to fuss. Some of them would start to self-soothe. And what they found out in this study was the babies that were deeply connected to the parent also felt really safe. And they, they had their rates of, or the stress levels were less in those babies. So the babies that were more connected, who had a sense of safety, they didn't feel as much stress. And I thought that was so fascinating because it's a little bit like our relationship with God. When we are connected with God, when we remain in deep connection with God, when circumstances in our life run out of control, which they will, we still 
can have this deep sense of God's presence in our life and we can experience a life without lack because we know that we are safe and that God will provide. In that psalmist's opening line, the Lord is my shepherd, I think one of the cool things about it is it's not just a statement about God, but it's also a claim that the psalmist is making about himself. Because if you look at it, the psalmist is actually saying as well, my shepherd is God. My shepherd is God. And when we read it like that, we see this confidence and a trust that the psalmist had in God. And I think it responds to the implicit question, which is a question we can take away today, and that's, who is your shepherd? In contrast to other gods and resources and rulers that other people might trust to shepherd them through the hard times, the psalmist's trust is in God, the good shepherd. When we live out that truth, when we lean into the fact that God is the good shepherd, that he's got us, that he's for us, that's what leads to a life of contentment. That's the life without lack. And it will follow. It just naturally follows when we center our life in God. I do want to say this, not to be confused, this life without lack, with a life without grief and loss and pain and suffering and joy and uncertainty, because that is life. But the deep, rich and beautiful life that God calls us to, we can have we put God at the center of it. So as we enter this Lenten season, we have an ask. And I wouldn't ask you guys if I'm not going to ask myself, can we make one commitment in the next six weeks, one commitment to change things up, do something different that might expose you to a different experience of God? And it could be something as simple as taking that psalm 23, and making a commitment to every day, meditating over it. Just meditated over it. Or maybe you have the courage to step into something uncomfortable. Maybe you have a neighbor that's struggling or a friend that's sick. Or you've been invited into something or asked to serve in a way that makes you just a little bit uncomfortable. Step into it and I promise you will experience God in a different way. Maybe it's simply about being more intentional about God's creation, getting yourself outside during Lent, pausing to observe what's around you. But the ask is just that. Do one simple thing that's different for six weeks and keep your mind on God the Good Shepherd and experience God in new ways that will change your life. Instead of ending in prayer, I've asked Christian and Mara to come up. Let me invite you to just sit in this song and let it wash over you. And after that, Matt will come up for words of institution. And we can sit here and we can go in peace knowing that we are God's and he is ours.